Good evening, this is Peter Coleman. I am on the faculty at the Earth Institute and at Teachers College at Columbia University, and I direct the International Center for Cooperation and Conflict Resolution here. And um, I am eager to introduce our guest uh, uh, this evening. I have uh, a, an assistant professor of political science at Barnard College, whose name is Severine Autisser, who, and I'm going to ask her to pronounce it as well. It, it was perfect, but it's Severine Autesser. Well, that's just so much better. <laughs> um, and Severine joined the Barnard faculty in about 2007. Before that, she was a postdoc at Yale, uh, and she conducted research on civil and international wars and international intervention. Um, and she um, now teaches at Barnard. She teaches in a, a variety of different classes, such as aid, violence, and politics in Africa, uh, she does a senior research seminar in international relations, civil wars, um, and she's affiliated with various institutions here, the Africana Studies Program, uh, Columbia Saltzman Institute for War and Peace. Um, so welcome. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much for inviting me. And we have uh, the privilege. You, you also, I think, were a recipient of AC4's Interdisciplinary Research Awards, right? I got two of them, yes. Oh, congratulations. So <laughs> AC4, you. the Advanced Consortium on Cooperation, Conflict, and Complexity, is, is uh, the institute that sort of helps host these, uh, these um, shows. And uh, Severine um, received a couple of the uh, faculty awards, research awards, and uh, for that. So, and we have the honor. She, she's written a couple of really fascinating books. Um, she is an, uh, does ethnography, so do you have an anthropological background? Or I know you work in political science, but what, what is your background, and how did you get involved in the study of war and peace? I don't have an anthropological background, but uh, most of the political scientists who were my supervisors when I did my doctoral studies had uh, either anthropological training or an anthropological sensibility. So mm -hmm. that's how I got to do this kind of ethnographic work. Right. Um, and I actually got involved in war and peace studies, not at all through academia. Uh, it was more because when, when I grew up, I wanted to be a humanitarian aid worker. Mm. I wanted to work for doctors without borders and, sure. and, and work uh, in, in relief aid. And I did that for um, a couple of years before, uh, a year, uh, before going to grad school to, to do my PhD. And that's how I got interested in the Congolese conflict, which became the topic of my first book. I see, I see. So the first book was called The Trouble with the Congo, and you wrote about violence, and you wrote about how violence, local-level violence, could affect the peace process at the national level and vice versa, and sort of how these, how violence can work across levels in sort of peculiar ways. Tell us a little bit about the essence of the book. Yes, exactly. The, 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 central, uh, the central topic of the book was trying to understand why violence continues in the Congo despite the presence of massive international and national peace-building efforts. Mm -hmm. uh, really in Congo, I, I, I don't know if, if your audience know, but the Congolese conflict is the deadliest conflict since World War II. Mm -hmm. uh, it's also the stage of the largest ongoing humanitarian crisis in the the world, so it is an extremely, extremely important civil war. And there have been massive international efforts to end the violence. Uh, the Congo it hosts the largest, most expensive peacekeeping mission in the world, and I could go on and on to sure. talk about the importance of the international intervention there. But what, what surprised me was that uh, there seemed to be really a disconnect between the amount of efforts and, uh, and, and the target of the efforts and the violence that was continuing. Mm -hmm. Basically, if you looked at the international efforts, you saw that they were uh, targeting 
what I call national and international conflicts. So conflicts between the Congo and neighboring states mm -hmm. and conflict between the president, uh, the government mm -hmm. and various national level rebel groups. Sure. And in my analysis of the conflict, uh, <laughs> not immediately when I arrived, but after working in Congo for several years, to me, the conflict was driven by local level conflict, really conflict around land, around local power, either traditional power or administrative power, around local access to mine and to, to other economic resources, around social status mm -hmm. at the level of the village or the di district. And, and so all of these local conflicts were fueling the national and international conflicts. So every time we had a peace settlement at the national and, and international level, it would hold for a couple of months or mm -hmm. even a year or two. Mm -hmm. But then given that nothing was done to assuage the local level conflict, mm -hmm. the local level conflict would escalate and would jeopardize anything that we achieved at the national and international level. Mm -hmm. So I was puzzled and I was wondering, well, if local conflicts are really driving, a not all, but a lot of the violence in Congo, why is there no international action uh, in support of local conflict resolution? Yeah. So how long were you in, in how long did you study in the Congo for the book? Uh, for that book, I, I traveled there regularly between 2001 and 2007. Uh -huh. So I would spend six months, go back to New York, then three months, right, uh, right. then two months, et cetera, et cetera. So as somebody that does primarily laboratory research and computer simulations, I find it quite noble and harrowing uh, what you do, that you go into the bush and you work in these settings. Um, what is that like for you as, a, as an academic and as a, as a worker? How is that experience? Well, it's, um, of course it's scary yeah. um, and it's difficult. Uh, in sense of like everything is difficult. Just traveling to a place is difficult. Everything falls apart all the time because of security problems, because there are no roads, uh, because uh, because uh, the person who finally agreed to give you an appointment then cannot make it or or has to travel somewhere else. So every it's it's just extremely time consuming and difficult. But at the same time, it's exhilarating mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because especially now the Congo is there are more researchers who work there. But when I started doing my research, my, my doctoral research, I was one of the very few researchers who mm. worked in the Eastern Congo. Mm -hmm. And and what was really rewarding for me and, and, and really uh, and kept me going was that people were eager to talk to me. Mm. And I remember interviews where after four hours I was talking to people and they were going on and on. And wow. I, I couldn't. I couldn't write anymore. I was exhausted. Sure. I couldn't think. Right. Uh, but they were, they were so happy to tell their stories mm. and they were so eager to tell their stories. And to me, that was something that, uh, that, that felt much more interesting and much more exhilarating mm -hmm. than uh, staying in my office in front of my computer at Columbia just because I had the feeling that I was doing something that was useful. Sure. That was useful not only for me and for academic science, sure. uh, but also for the people who were living in Congo. And, and, and then when I talked to people and when I saw that by, uh, by developing my conflict analysis and my different conflict analysis on, on the different causes of violence, that people started being convinced and they started thinking about it and, and thinking about how to adjust their programs. I saw, well, my research is not only having some kind of academic scholarly impact, but it also it may help make the situation better for people on the ground. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. that's also something that, uh, that kept me going, despite the fact that it's, it was not always the, the most um, 
fun uh, <laughs> sure. field work to do. So you were seeing impact with policymakers or donors or really are at the local level in terms of how people were thinking about the work? Well, um, it's it's very difficult to trace impact for the kind of work I do because, you know, when, when people tell me, oh, we have uh, a project on local conflict resolution and it's because we read your book, right. uh, I don't know if it's because they read my book or because they just want to uh, make me happy and those, <laughs> they <laughs> sure. tell me that I had an influence, but in fact I had absolutely no influence. Sure, sure. So, uh, but what I, I've seen, what I've seen is that there is a change between when I started my doctoral research, so mm -hmm. between 2001 and, uh, and now 2014, when I started my doctoral research and I asked people, so what are you doing uh, to resolve local conflict? What are, you, what are your programs on local peace building? People either didn't understand the question mm. Or they started laughing at me mm. and telling me, but why, why do you want me to work for the UN or me who is a diplomat? You know, why do you want me to do something about local conflict resolution? Or they started telling me about their programs to help survivors of sexual violence. Uh -huh, uh -huh. So there was, it, it was, to me, that showed that local violence and local conflict resolution was not even an, on the agenda. Not it was not map, even yeah. on the mental map sure. of the peace builders who were working there. And now, uh, in 2013, I heard several very high-level declarations by the UN special, the United Nations Special Representative for the Great Lakes Region, by the United States uh, Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs, saying that local conflict resolution is central to mm. peace building efforts in mm -hmm. Congo. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I think that it's it obviously it's not only my work. Uh, there is there there are many people who are working on trying to place local conflict resolution on sure. the agenda sure. of policymakers and practitioners. Sure. But I hope that that my work has helped at sure. least in a, at least a little bit. Very so good. maybe could you describe um, a little bit about your first trip to Congo and what that was like and how your viewpoints changed um, from when you kind of stepped off the plane to when you came back to New York. Right, yeah. Um, well, my first trip to Congo, I was, it was in 2001, and I was working for Doctors Without Borders, because mm -hmm. I, <laughs> I did manage to work with Doctors Without Borders. And I was, uh, I was not a PhD student at that time. I was in charge of doing context analysis for Doctors Without Borders so that uh, the non-governmental organization could decide whether or not to open programs mm -hmm. uh, in the country. And, and, and in Congo at the time, uh, it was really full-scale civil war. Uh, the country was completely divided. You couldn't cross from governmental areas to rebel areas with the same passport. It was extremely dangerous. Um, and, uh, and, and, and most of the time, the city centers, the, the centers of the main cities were, uh, were safe. But uh, as soon as you got outside of the city center, even like one kilometer outside of the city center, it was, it was so violent and so dangerous that uh, you, you preferred not to travel outside of there. So a, a lot of security problems. And, and to me, when I, when I arrived, um, I was trying, given that my job was to help my colleagues understand what was going on on the ground, I was trying to understand why people were fighting, what were the reasons for violence, the reasons for the conflict. And I didn't understand anything. Mm. Um, I, and I, I kept on asking people, so do you have a framework of analysis? Can you help me? And uh, people told me, oh, yes, it's a simple conflict. It's uh, the government of Rwanda versus the government of Congo. And it's uh, Congolese of Rwandan descent versus indigenous Congolese. And then the government of Congo is allied with the indigenous Congolese and the government of Rwanda 
is allied with the Congolese of Rwandan descent. And I was like, okay, that's fine. I can analyze the conflict that way. And then I said, but then why is the government of of Rwanda allied with some of the indigenous Congolese? That makes no sense. Uh, why do people actually fight with the other, with with the national uh, leaders whom they are supposed to be allied with? You know what? What? And everything, everything would collapse, and it happened all the time. Hmm. I would get a framework of analysis, I would try to apply it, and then within a week it would collapse, and I would have to go back to trying to understand. And that's why, that's why. I started writing the book. Uh, mm. Well, not writing the book, doing the research. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, it's because I thought that we didn't have a good understanding for uh, for violence in Congo, and we needed, if we wanted to have good peace building programs and good humanitarian aid programs, we needed to understand better what was going on on the ground. So we have the the honor of being, I think, one of the first um, public interviewers uh, of you around your new book. Uh, which you is do. about to come out in April or May. Yes. Uh, I believe it's called Peaceland. It right? is. Um, and uh, it, 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 it seems to have a provocative air to it in that um, it describes uh, to some degree why so many peace processes fail and the role of the intervener and their almost sort of daily life and daily habits and social habits and how that can play have a, a, an unexpected impact, I think, on um, the challenges of peace processes. So, so please tell us a bit about that project, how that started, and, uh, and what you've learned. Right. So the, the new book is on what I call the everyday element. So when, when we try to understand why peace-building uh, peace efforts and peacemaking and, and peacekeeping efforts, why they succeed or fail, or why, why some of them are more effective than others, we're always thinking about uh, economic resources, uh, about the mandates, and about what I call macro-level elements, about things that happen in capital cities uh, that happen and agreements exactly and diplomats, right. exactly all of the things that are elite level uh, things and uh, when I talk to people on the ground they tell me that uh, what they do on an everyday basis of course has absolutely no impact on the effectiveness of their program because it's personal because it's informal and because who cares who they dr have a drink with afterwards or how they protect their security or how they go about collecting their information mm -hmm. and what the book is about is showing that these everyday elements the way we live and work as interveners as international peace builders on an everyday basis basis on the ground in conflict zones. And I'm really not talking anymore about capital cities, mm -hmm. about headquarters. I really talk about what happens in rural areas, in provinces outside of the capitals, where people do the peace building work uh, and the bulk of the peace building work. Uh, I, I show that these nuts and bolts of peace building, these everyday dimensions, they actually have a very strong impact on the effectiveness of international efforts. So they can make some intervention more successful and mm -hmm. they can make other intervention less successful. So this is beyond the Congo or is it still primarily focused in your work there? I, I did the, the, I developed the theory and, and the main analysis in Congo. So mm -hmm. I spent a, a year living and working with international peace builders based in, in North Kivu, which is uh, a, a very violent area of Congo. Um, and then I did research in eight other conflict zones mm -hmm. uh, to see whether uh, what I had observed in Congo was actually relevant to analyze what was going on in other places. So mm -hmm. I worked in South Sudan, in Burundi, in Afghanistan, Kosovo, Timor-Leste, Israel and the Palestinian territories, and I'm forgetting one area, Nicaragua. Very good. So tell us, what give us some sense of these everyday activities that you find either you know mitigate 
conflict or exacerbate the problem. Right. Um, it's it's not. Well, yes, it is mitigate conflict or exacerbate the problem. Um, let's say if you want to, if you're an international peace builder and uh, you want to resolve conflict in a village, you arrive uh, and. Uh, Sorry, if you're an international peace builder and you want to, re to, to, to mitigate conflict in a village, uh, you, um, one of the important things is what kind of relationship you will develop with your counterparts, mm -hmm. with the people who are parts of the conflict, with the other peace builders, and, and with the members of the community. Sure. So it's something that we all know, but um, these relationships, you can develop them in a professional way, uh, you know, in a professional setting when you're doing your work, or, and you can also develop them uh, outside of work, in a social setting, in a personal setting, by having a drink with them uh, afterwards, uh, by going to parties with them or to the movies, by, uh, by meeting their families, going to church or going to the mosque, or, you know, mm -hmm. by, by doing all of this social stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, there is a, a constant across conflict zones. If you look at international intervenes, during professional set in professional settings, they try to develop the best possible relationship with their local counterparts because they know that it's very important mm -hmm. to to help be effective. But as soon as they stop working, they go back in what we call the expatriate bubble, mm -hmm. the bubble where it's only the international interveners who have their own routines, they have their own language, um, and 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 they uh, they socialize among themselves. Sure. And so many uh, international national peace builders uh, fail to develop social and personal relationships with their local counterparts. Mm -hmm. And when, when you ask them, they tell you, well, but it really doesn't matter because I have good professional relationships. Sure. But in fact, we all know that networking is important. Yeah. We all know that wherever the country we're working in, if you have personal relationship, if someone is a friend mm -hmm. or if, someone is, uh, if the person is someone you had a drink with the day before, of course he's going to help you more. Sure. And of course he's going to be much more open to the kind of things you want to do with uh, with him or with her. Um, so so I'm, I'm showing that by, by, by forgetting about the development of these personal and social relationships, um, then uh, most international peace builders um, decrease the effect the potential effectiveness of their efforts mm -hmm. um, and by contrast when you do develop uh, social and personal relationships then you're much more effective do you mm -hmm. want a story mm -hmm. yes yes please <laughs> give a give a specific that sounds great so um uh, Timor-Leste. Timor-Leste, yeah. uh, you remember you had uh, a lot of violence and then massive international efforts to end the violence and so between uh, 2000 and uh, 2006, uh, uh, it, th there was uh, the sense that Timor-Leste was on its way to pacification, to peace building. And then in 2006, you had riots. Mm -hmm. And the riots took almost every international peace builders by surprise. People were extremely surprised to see the eruption of violence. They, it was completely unexpected. Sure. And there was one person, I mean, there were a few persons who, uh, who were foreign interveners, but who predicted um, the eruption of violence and um, and who tried to get their colleagues to do something to prevent the violence and one of them was James one of my interviewees uh -huh. and when I asked him so how did you get the information to understand uh, and to analyze the conflict in a yeah. way that other people hadn't been able to do he said well you know there was something different about me because when I, w when I started working my organization didn't have a lot of money and my salary was not very high so uh, during weekends all of my colleagues would go 
to the beach mm-hmm. uh, and they would go to nice houses and they would party but uh-huh. I didn't have the money to do that uh-huh. so I stayed I stayed in Delhi and uh, because I, I wanted to have a social life I went to see my neighbors mm-hmm. and I spent my time with them in their neighbor in in their backyard and we started talking and yeah. then I became part of the social fabrics yeah, and they started being used to seeing me yeah. and he told me well and after several months and after several years they started being more and more open in front of me and they started talking to m- in front of me in ways that uh, that they didn't talk in front of other expatriates sure. they started telling about their fears about their hopes and they started telling about incidents of violence and incidents of conflict that they they, they didn't talk about to other interveners sure. so James had a much better much more intimate understanding of the conflicts and that's how he was able to predict sure. the uh, the rising te- the, to see the rising tensions and to predict the eruption of violence uh, while the rest of uh, the peace builders they were not necessarily uh, less intelligent than James or or sure. or, 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 or the the, the matter was not a matter of intelligence or training. It's just that James had these better personal and social relationships with his neighbors. Sure. Fascinating. And so it, 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 it was a combination of um, stronger trust, but also just familiarity, right? Exactly. And comfort with each other. And so a different kind of information comes out, which makes perfect sense, right? But it also makes sense that people think, well, you know, this is my socialization on the job. And this is what I really want to do, you know, when I want to relax, right? Exactly. And yeah. and that's what I, I, I show in the book is that every this is just one of the many choices, one of the many everyday elements yeah. uh, that I analyze in the book. And I also talk about how you uh, protect yourself, how, how you uh, promote your security, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, how you uh, do fundraising, how you analyze your information. I, mean, mm-hmm. I, I, I analyze a lot of different topics. And for all of them, they all make sense. Of course, you want to protect your security. Of sure. course, it makes sense that uh, when you are in a situation like that, you want to uh, you want to live in a compound. Uh, you want to uh, show that you uh, that you help people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But all of these routines that make complete sense and that sure. are perfectly understandable, they have counterproductive effects, sure. and they would be easy to change. And that's the thing. That's why I think the the book might be useful for for policymakers and practitioners is because if you think about you know, again going back to the elements that we usually identify as being influential like lack of resources uh like having the great powers who have competing interests how yeah. do you want to fix that sure, it's, sure, <laughs> sure. it's very difficult yeah. right uh if we're talking about changing everyday habits and practice and routine about the fact of going afterwards after work to have a drink uh, with your, you know, coffee or tea with your local counterpart. Or um, another thing is, from, for example, promoting your security. There are ways to promote your securities that uh, that um, that don't uh, remove the international interveners from their surroundings. Uh-huh. For example, um, another example. Yeah. Okay. So um, in. One of the things I analyze in the book is that when you pr- promote, your, when you try to protect yourself, you can either I- isolate yourself from your environment, yeah. or you can try to blend in your environment. Uh-huh. 
Um, and there have been uh, a lot of studies that show that uh, people who use what we call the acceptance approach to security, so by developing relationship with, uh, with, with their local counterparts, that they are much better able to protect their security. They have fewer security incidents uh -huh. than people who isolate themselves and who live in bunkers. Sure. But then there are environments where you have to live in a bunker, like yeah. Somalia, for example, or Afghanistan. If yeah. you're a foreigner there, yeah. uh, it's very difficult uh, to blend in within the community, and sure. it's extremely dangerous. But there have been studies by Jan uh, Eg uh, Egerland and Abby Stoddard and, and, and their colleagues uh, who have shown that it, it, it really makes, in terms of security, if you put the, the sandbags that you put in front of your walls to, mm -hmm. to protect the walls and to, to, to buttress the walls, if you put them outside, it gives the appearance that your compound is, is kind of a military structure sure. and that you're, uh, and it really isolates yourself from the environment. Yeah. Well, in terms of security, if you put the sandbags inside, mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. behind the wall, uh -huh. it doesn't give the appearance to your neighbor that you're completely scared sure. and that you're really trying to isolate yourself from the environment, but mm -hmm. it has exactly the same benefit mm -hmm. in terms mm -hmm. of protecting your security. Mm -hmm. So these are, again, very, very minor things but that are practical, practical things yeah. that are easy to do yeah. and that, uh, that, that, that really... Um, continue to protect your security, but at the same time, uh, decrease the isolation from your environment mm -hmm. and decrease the perception by local actors mm -hmm. that uh, that you're this alien thing uh, that has no idea of what's going on in their community and that they cannot trust. Sure. It's fascinating. So I wanted to ask a provocative question. So um, what you've discovered, I think, again, makes sense. What, what piece builders, peacemakers do make sense in terms of their day-to-day -day, um, and the consequences of it make sense right. in terms of distance, distancing them from local people, from information. Um, so one possibility is that your book is published and it has an impact on peacemakers and so they now intentionally decide to act as you would recommend engage more deeply, engage more socially. Um, and it has a then flavor of intentionality and instrumentality, <laughs> right? Be, but uh, of course it right. would make sense and it, it w would be prescriptive and, and could have utility, but it, it's, it's different than hanging out with the people that you're comfortable with. It, has, it is a professional intentional f uh, initiative, right? Right. And, and, and what might be the consequences of that? Actually, um, I, I think, to 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 address this dilemma, and I'm not going to talk about the consequences. I'm, I'm going <laughs> okay. to talk about ways to avoid the negative consequences right. that uh, that you mentioned. I think that you ne we need to change the recruitment practices for international interveners. Mm -hmm. Now, the way we recruit people is that we need to have technical experts mm -hmm. who are, are experts, for example, in uh, cross-cultural training, uh -huh. or who are expert in uh, monitoring and evaluation, and who have done the same technical jobs in mm -hmm. various conflict zones. Yeah, uh -huh. and the more con the, the 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 higher the number of countries you've worked with, uh, the higher your status uh -huh. and the higher your salary usually uh -huh. um, as an international peace builder. And what I'm saying is that we should ins instead of hiring these technical experts or in instead of placing so much emphasis on technical expertise, we should also place a lot of emphasis on local knowledge and on and 
understanding of the country. So, for example, hiring people who have an anthropological training or an anthropological sensibilities and who are interested, who want to go into, you know, in Congo, in Afghanistan, because they are interested about Congo, about the Afghan society, because they already speak the language or mm -hmm. because they've started taking classes in the language and because they genuinely want to it's not only because they want to work for this organization and uh, in that particular job, whether they are in Afghanistan, in Congo, or in Timor-Leste, sure. but it's because they're interested in the particular in the country. Yeah. And that way, and, and also I think uh, in recruitment practices, uh, we should pay much more, uh, much more attention to the social skills mm -hmm. of the people uh, we hire. Uh, because usually, as long as you're not a... Uh, a, a complete a social person, <laughs> then you pass the test, right. and and I've heard so many stories of people who were who were who, who were extremely frustrated with their colleagues sure. uh, because the the colleagues were, for example, yelling mm -hmm. uh, on their local counterparts, or because they were behaving in ways that were extremely insulting for sure. everybody. Sure. And so again, if you just make sure that you get decent human beings uh, to send them to conflict zone, that's right. going to decrease again the level of conflicts between international and local peace builders uh, and between international and local partners. Fascinating. So, so as a, sorry, can I ask you know, a question? Yes, please. Um, as, so as an international peace builder, on average, how often are you going to be moving from country to country? Depends who you work for um, and depends how dangerous the environment is. I think I have statistics in the book, so um, we would have to double check, but I think it's more or less every six months to a year if you work for a non-governmental organization. Um, then I would say every two years if you work for the United Nations or for an international organization and every two to three years if you work for uh, a diplomatic mission. And actually most of these organizations, they build rotation in their recruitment and in their, uh, and in their promotion practices. For example, for uh, diplomatic missions, you have no choice. After, depending on the country, mm -hmm. uh, after I think it's three years for most country, you have to leave. Mm -hmm. You have to leave, you have to go somewhere else. Um, and for um, and ICR, what's the intention behind that? The intention behind that is to, uh, it's, it's actually very interesting. The intention is actually to prevent uh, local cooptation. It's to make sure that the international intervener remains, remains, uh, remains distant. Exactly, remains right. distant, neutral, remains neutral, professional, professional and doesn't uh, uh, doesn't get involved in corruption scandals, uh, doesn't get involved in uh, and doesn't get involved too much in local politics, doesn't get enmeshed in local politics, and doesn't start developing biases. I mean, it's interesting because that sounds like that's exactly the opposite of what you you've shown or what you've argued has worked. Well. I think I think you need a measure of both, mm -hmm. and that's what's really important. Is that um, and and the the idea of rotating people and and sending them somewhere else after a couple of years is actually a, a, a governmental technique and an administration technique that was already. Uh, that was already used by the Byzantine Imp Empire, so it's very, very old, and it has a, it has a lot of merits. But uh, but you cannot rely only on that. So what I'm saying is that instead of having only people who rotate and only people who are external and who are not biased, who are neutral, who are objective, and who don't know anything about the local context, who are really distant, you also need to add another category of international peace builders, those who are really involved in the community and who really know what's going on. Um, and then, um, and and you need to have the, these two people in your organize these two categories of people in your organization. Mm -hmm. And the usually when I tell that to uh, to 
to people who work uh, in international peace building, they tell me, well, but the local staff, uh, the staff you know, from the country of intervention, they are the ones who have the local involvement, and that's why we have expatriates, international actors, foreigners who come, and they are the distant one. So that would work, but only if you give an equal measure of responsibility and an equal status in the organization and equal power to both local and international staff. But the problem is that in all organ in every single organization I know of, except for a few exceptions that I analyze in the book, but otherwise, um, the local staff are always uh, the the man sorry the international staff is always in the management in the leadership position, mm -hmm. and the local people make up the staff. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you want to uh, become, if, if you want to move up in the hierarchy of your organization, you have to go abroad and become an expatriate. Fascinating. So you're, uh, in your book, you're describing a challenge. You're describing a dilemma, a dilemma of, of whether you get close enough to get access to uh, genuine information, timely information, worthwhile information, um, or whether you... Um, follow certain practices that are very common that protect you and that uh, allow you to blow off steam and enjoy yourself and relax and under dangerous circumstances. So uh, are there people that manage that dilemma effectively? There are. Um, I haven't found any organization or any person who manages all of the dilemma that I mentioned in the book and, and that manages them successfully, but I have found what I call exceptions, so people who are exception to the dominant routines and the dominant ways of working, uh, to every single one of them. Mm. So for example, uh, one of the organizations that I really like and that I talk about all the time is called the Life and Peace Institute. And they work in Congo, in Eastern Congo, and what they do is that they rely on just a few expatriate staff who have an in-depth understanding of the regions, who speak the language, who have spent a lot of time there. Uh, but the expatriates are very few, and they work and they give a lot of responsibility to Congolese uh, members of the organizations. Mm -hmm. And the way they uh, resolve conflict on the ground and is that instead of arriving in a village and saying, well, we're going to use this technique of, law of conflict resolution because that has worked in Timor-Leste, or that has worked in Sudan and therefore it's going to work in your conflict, they gather the local communities and they tell them, okay, tell us what is your analysis of the conflict and how do you think we should resolve the conflict and then tell us what you need from international uh, actors. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're going to try to, uh, to do a net, uh, we're going to try to do the relay so that uh, we can help you get the resources that you need to resolve your conflict. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they're taking the complete opposite way mm -hmm. of working uh, from, from most organizations. When you take the United Nations, for example, the way they arrive is they, they, they write their plans in New York yeah. or in Geneva, and then they implement them on the ground, whether it's, again, in Afghanistan, in Congo, in Sudan, in Timor-Leste, it doesn't matter. They have their, mm -hmm. their framework and their, uh, their general templates that mm -hmm. they apply everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, while I think the organizations that are very effective are those that take the complete opposite approach mm -hmm. and, uh, and and go in the village and ask people what they want mm -hmm. uh, before even thinking about what kind of uh, conflict resolution programs they should implement. Mm -hmm. So there's a there's a, uh, a peacemaker named Jean-Paul Lederach who right. writes about uh, yes. what, what he would describe as a more prescriptive approach, which is what you're describing yeah. the UN implementing, which is having a, a plan and a model and going in and, and sort of top-down implementing it, or a more elicitive approach, which is really respecting and honoring what locally, how what conflict means, how it goes well, how it goes poorly, what you can do about that. 
And one of the things that he talks about is the need oftentimes for some combination of both. Right. That there does oftentimes need to be some plan. There needs to be some expertise that's brought in and that's that's offered as a resource. And so, um, and that you need to find ways to work with local cultures and local understandings, um, but not throw away what you understand to be valid science or valid policy, right? Right. So do you see that kind of combined approach um, in some of your cases? Yes, yes, and it, it goes back to the question that Rudy was asking. The, the idea is not to replace our technical outside expertise with local expertise. It's mm -hmm. really just to rebalance uh -huh. the role of outside technical knowledge uh, and local expertise so that sure. they are both valued. Sure. Um, and in again, going back to the uh, to, to, to the example of the Life and Peace Institute, I was saying they have expatriates who arrive. Mm -hmm. And these expatriates are, 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 are recruited because they know something about conflict resolution. Sure. And they also have the, the people who work in the organization, both the expatriates and the Congolese, they are very well versed in the, in the conflict resolution techniques, the mm -hmm. latest mm -hmm. research. Mm -hmm. They go to seminars and mm -hmm. they attend the thing. So they, they are technical experts. Sure. Uh, but at the same time, they marry this technical expertise with a deep understanding of the local context. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That makes good sense. Well, Dr. Severine Otisera, try, try for me one more time. Severine Otisera. Oh, so, so lovely. <laughs> um, her new book is Peaceland, and uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. It's a fascinating book. It sounds like a very practical and useful book for the international community, so thank you for your work, and thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for the invitation. My pleasure. That was fun.